Hello, welcome to Hattrick. I am Jordan Darwin Coleman. I am joined by Elliot Tanti. We are without Braden this week because he is working. But Elliot, uh, this gives you and me a little bit more time uh, to talk because we all know the real air hog on this show is definitely Braden. Yeah, certainly the two of us barely get a word in. Well, he turned 30 this this week, so hopefully with a little bit of, uh, I don't know, age and maturity, he'll he'll start to realize that, uh, you know, less is more. I yeah, certainly I'm, have. And me too, for sure. I, uh, I barely say anything on this show. All right. Well, with that, let's get to it. Here's topic one. Okay, so we, um, we've been kind of putting this off, to be fair. Um, I think uh, a large part of that was just that as news has continued to sort of trickle and shift and change around this story, we, we wanted to make sure that when we had the conversation, we were doing so both from a place of um, well-prepared education from our own perspectives. We wanted to be ready for the conversation. We wanted to know what was going on and we wanted to be able to talk about it, you know, from some position of opinion, but also, as I say, it has been evolving. And this week certainly was another big um, moment in, in, in what has continued to evolve. So what am I talking about? We're going to talk a little bit about soccer, Canada, uh, Canada, soccer, I should say. Um, And the continuing, uh, turmoil that this organization has found itself in over the past 12 months or so. Um, this goes back to a conversation we did have previously on the show about how the men's team, the men's national team actually um, boycotted a game, a friendly match and a, a warm up for the World Cup that they were uh, meant to play here in Vancouver, I believe that last summer. Um, and they literally the day of pulled out of the game, uh, citing that they weren't happy with financial situation with uh, Canada soccer uh, and that they were looking to renegotiate their deal going into the world cup. So that was the first sort of sign that not all was um, happy. And then most, most recently, as we've seen the women's national team prepare for the, for their world cup, um, they too have, have staged some protests. They participated in a uh, friendly match earlier in this month or last month, I should say February uh, with their jerseys turned inside out as to hide the soccer Canada emblem and that they have made it very clear. They appeared, several members of the national team appeared uh, in front of a, um, a parliamentary committee this week. And that's why I say we waited till this sort of part of the conversation had occurred. And we learned a lot more about what their, both their grievance and their frustration with the organization is. Um, but, it's a very complicated situation we're talking about. This is a national organization that has many different types of responsibilities and um, facilitates a lot of different types of administration. It's complicated. We're talking about minor soccer. We're talking about community-based soccer, national league style soccer, and obviously these elite level national programs. So uh, obviously the national, the two top national teams are not happy. They want more money. They don't feel like they're being compensated for the impact that they have had on the sport in this country. And certainly the women feel like they have on top of that been shortchanged in comparison to the men. So there's a lot of different pieces of this moving in. Elliot, where should we start for you? Where does this, what is the most intriguing or the most, um, I guess the most newsworthy part of this for you begin? Well, I think it's with the parliamentary hearings that we had this week. And I, I think so. an act of poor, bad faith, poor faith, whatever you want to say from Canada's soccer, in that uh, just hours before the women were to testify at that hearing, uh, they released details of a private negotiation that was ongoing between the women and, and, and Canada soccer at that point. Uh, obviously, this is it's not a negotiation tactic. I think they've reached a deal. Um, in principle, at least around some of the finances related to the team. Uh, this was a reputation thing. Uh, it, it obviously upset the, the uh, aside from uh, trying to change the narrative, I think it really um, upset uh, the women that were intended to speak at that, that committee hearing. And while they did very well to stay on topic and stay on focus, it certainly was a piece of uh, the hearing and, and sort of, uh, in some ways, I think undercut uh, the full breadth of the story uh, of them talking about the challenges that they're facing. <clears throat> so, you know, I would start there. I mean, the other thing I would say is just around, you know, this is for a lot of people, you hear pay equity and you're talking about that. But it sounds as though there's a real disadvantage for the women's national team when it comes to even just the basics of running an elite program, uh, capacity for physiotherapists and medical staff, training staff. 
Um, you know, certainly some of this may go back to the decision to move John Herdman from the women's team to the men's team. And uh, the, while that's not been cited specifically, certainly, uh, you know, that is another thing that I'd be thinking about in this in this center, too. So, you know, equity isn't just around when we talk about equity, it's not just around pay. This is about all aspects and, and facets of how that team is supported versus the men's versus other teams, basically. So you mentioned the women who spoke, um, three three women specifically from the national team, uh, three prominent women, uh, Janine Becky, Sophie Schmidt, and obviously Christine Sinclair, uh, who's pretty much a household name at this point in Canada, all spoke. I want to read two quotes to you because I think they kind of encapsulate some of the frustration you mentioned and some of what these women were uh, frustrated with and communicated their frustration through. So the first one, and I quote, We have been successful, not because of our federation, but in spite of our federation, Uh, end quote. That's Janine Becky. And then Sophie Schmidt said, and I quote, we're not fighting for tomorrow. We are fighting for this World Cup. And the key piece of both of those is that these women are recognizing uh, that, as you said, Um, This organization has for a long time struggled to figure out exactly what its responsibility, especially to the national teams, is the the equity part of it, the pay equity part of it, uh, how the money is is used and where it's going to. From the women's perspective, I think that there's a big frustration in that for a long time they carried this the, 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 the Canada soccer brand in this country. They were the elite program. The men weren't. The men weren't competing for World Cups when these women were. These women were competing at Olympics. They were competing at the highest levels of their sport. And in a sport that, you know, I think women, uh, the women's side of Soccer Canada has, uh, pardon me, not just Soccer Canada, soccer in general has grown so much in the last decade. The attention it's gotten from stars, not just in Canada, but stars like Abby Wambach in the States and the, the, the just the exposure of it in general, the way that European uh, soccer clubs, big soccer clubs have started to embrace uh, women's sides. So you have, you know, uh, Paris Saint-Germain and most of the Premier League all have these women's sides that are giving elite level athletes opportunities that they didn't have 20 years ago. We're starting to see that pick up in the in, in North America, but that's a huge part of what the frustration from these athletes is, is that you have an organization like Soccer Canada that is using them as these really brilliant marketing tools for young Canadians, young women, young boys to pick up the game of soccer and in, and in turn support you know, the growth and development in this country. The challenge I think is there's just not enough money. And the reality is that these, as, as much as these tournaments generate some revenue, and especially as we move forward to the next men's world cup, which will be co-hosted by Canada in that North American um, sort of hosting situation, America, the United States, uh, Mexico, and, and Canada will all be co-hosting it. There will be huge sponsorship dollars, but the question is, how this organization spends that money when it's become clear that they are so uh, not, it's not just corruption, but it just so mismanaged um, is the real big piece of it. There's just not enough money for what the expectations are here. And the question is how and where do those cuts begin? And, and how does this organization kind of reorganize um, to get itself back into a better financial position? Because it's just a mess right now. And that's what we've started to see too, as these books and, and these court challenges have begun. We're starting to see the, the sort of the, the layers pulled back to see that for like decades, the mismanagement of this organization has caused them to be in such a terrible financial position. I mean, I think this is the challenge for me. I, I you know, I, you say that some of this has become to light the financial side in, in, in some recent suits. I have not seen that information. And this is one of the challenges that soccer associations face, uh, national soccer associations face across this world. In fact, there's an excellent documentary on Netflix all about how corrupt FIFA is. These organizations are not accountable to anyone. And this is the challenge that I have with this organization. Is there not enough money? Is that really the case? I'm not sure that that's necessarily the case or that we've been able, that's been determined or shown yet, to be completely frank. And this is the concern I have, is that this is an organization, and I know it's not Hockey Canada, which is a not-for-profit organization, has charitable status, but I'm starting to think maybe these should. These need to be accountable to boards. These need to have greater transparency in terms of their, their filings and, and the money that's available to them because uh, it just seems like 
either it's wholly mismanaged, which is what you're saying, and there seems to be some evidence of that, uh, or there's much more rapid corruption that I think is more problematic. Uh, either way, I, there just needs to be more and greater accountability. Uh, salaries should be public. The amount of money this organization is getting should be public, but it operates as a private organization, just like every other association that is part of FIFA. And uh, because of that, um, well, we've seen the rapid corruption that can occur in these spaces, and there's been very little to do done to to address it. So I, you know, this is for me. I think we're getting away from what's important here, which is the fight for. The, in particular, the women's national team, but this is part of a larger systemic issue that I think needs to be addressed more holistically. Well, and also it's a structural problem. So you bring up Hockey Canada, which for all of the additional things we have already discussed and should continue to discuss about the the, the terrible decision-making within that organization around dealing with sexual violence and how they have literally spent millions of Canadian taxpayer dollars, uh, fees from from minor hockey associations to cover up misconduct that's its own conversation from a business perspective hockey canada has done a very good job of making sure that money is it was spent in ways that promoted the sport and in in turn allowed athletes to to grow within their organization the difference for canada soccer is this sort of like not lack of direction, just bad direction mm. in terms of how it's been run for clearly over 40 or 50 years at this point. Uh, there was a change in the entire structure uh, almost a decade ago where they cut the, the the entire sort of business in half and launched the Canadian soccer business as a separate entity, which was designed to basically be the, the governing body of all of the sponsorship money, all of the um, broadcast rights negotiations for the national teams, all of that kind of stuff. But that's an organization that has invested over $100 million into soccer and apparently is still running deficits because they haven't been able to turn revenue from their sponsorship deals and haven't been able to turn revenue from their broadcast deals. So again, you have all of this investment, all of this money that should be going to to bettering the, 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 the actual athletes who are doing the work for these organizations. And clearly that money is being misappropriated because these, again, it, for me, it just reeks of incompetence. And that's the biggest frustration. This isn't so much corruption. I think this is just incompetence. And that's where I guess you have to start now. We know that they have assigned, they, they've, they've appointed a new uh, chairman, a chairwoman, I should say, but a new leader uh, to start to begin this organization. But the women have already come out and said that they have no confidence in, in, the appointment of new people because they still feel like they're people from within the organization and they want to see a wholesale change. I think that's probably fair, but I guess it, it really does feel at this point, like we're in, I don't know, this fight between two sides of an, but, but neither side really has a winning um, sort of strategy because there's really very little to be won without wholesale change. Yeah, it, it does feel bleak at this moment. Now, there's some good news. It looks like the men are close to a deal. The women have this deal, at least in principle. There's clearly no faith between the organization and the players. Um, but there was a story of today that one of the men from the national team did say, uh, or maybe it was two days ago, um, that you know he thinks there's a pathway forward and, and, and some bridge building to be done. I mean, again, I think this comes back to accountability. Everyone needs to be on the same page. And I just don't think, to be honest, um, they are at this point. Uh, and if it's incompetent, you could say incompetence. I, yeah, I'm not convinced of that. I think I worry there's more going on here just by, you know, some of that's just the stigmatization of these organ associations and how they've behaved in other countries. Um, so maybe that's not fair, but I, I just, for me, I think they're so far off from, uh, you know, doing what needs to be done here and it's not fair. And ultimately who's hurts. Uh, the, well, the women's team hurts the most, but it also hurts soccer. It, hurt, it hurts our development of, of younger players. And these are the things that have impacts, you know, five, 10, 15 years down the road. Yeah. Um, uh, you just know, in the interest of, be, you know, what I just to finish, like, would I necessarily be encouraging? Um, should I, if I were to have a daughter who's interested in soccer towards this path? I, I mean, at this point, it would be very difficult for me to, as a parent, have any trust in that. 
Um, just in the interest of, of ensuring that we're being accurate here, I have it in front of me. I, I just couldn't find it in that moment, the actual information here. So we had Nick Bontis, who was the former president of Canada soccer. He was ousted by the provincial associations in late February, as I said. Now, interestingly, he happened to be ousted just after he secured a very, uh, we'll just call it lucrative gig as the vice president of CONCACAF. So he kind of upgraded uh, on the way out the door. Regardless, uh, they um, they Canada Soccer has appointed an interim president, and that's Charmaine Crooks, who is a former national team member. Now, as I said, the women that spoke in front of the parliamentary committee have also said to the media that they feel this is a bit of a old guard sort of same kind of thing. Miss um, Crooks has been a member of the board for quite a few years, so it's not like someone fresh from the outside, new perspective so much as someone who's been in there already. And, and perhaps that's part of the problem. So uh, obviously a developing story, and we'll continue to see how this unfolds. As we say, the, the Women's World Cup here coming up very soon, and it's going to be interesting to see how the preparation for that is impacted by this, because you know it could be Christine Sinclair's, probably will be Christine Sinclair's last World Cup uh, opportunity for some of these women to have um, another opportunity to compete on a world stage. And the worst thing for, for them is for this to continue to become a, a growing distraction, but unfortunately um, it is. And that's just the reality of where we've gotten to with all of it. Let's leave it there for now. That's, that's topic one. Topic two this week is brought to us by the Ordinary Podcasting Network's merchandise store. If you head over to OrdinaryPodcasts.com right now, you will see that brand new merchandise has been dropping for the last week and a half. New items for a couple of our biggest shows are available now. You can go find a awesome sweatshirt and hat combo for running down the clock. And the MCU and Me podcast has a whole bunch of t-shirts. Trust me, there will be spoilers. Head over there today grab something to represent your favorite podcast i want to talk about two things so sort of together here this is a hockey related topic so i don't know if you watched the oilers and the maple leafs the other night um but i saw something in that game three different on three different occasions that i have never seen in the nhl and i'm very confused by now i don't i I consider myself a pretty well-educated hockey fan i feel like i watch a fair bit of hockey so it it surprised me not only that, again, I saw this once and then I saw it two more times and I thought to myself, have I been missing this? Is this common now? Is this normal? But it felt weird. And then the way the players talked about it post game made me think even more that it was out of the ordinary. So on three different occasions after the whistle penalties were called uh, coincidental penalties, although they didn't call them as coincidental. We're traditionally in a coincidental situation. Two players both go to the box and the teams remain at five, five, aside in this situation we went to four and four three different times two players that had had retaliate sort of retaliatory penalties but what was weird is that there was no call on the play before the whistle after the whistle the referees huddled and made a call both players to the box and it felt very game management e and felt very much like they were trying to handle something but it was also very odd to me that this is how this game was being managed. You didn't have penalty. So was it not a penalty? Was the first piece not a penalty until there was a retaliation and then a whistle or were they both penalties or were neither of them penalties until the whistle? You know what I mean? It felt, it felt suspect and I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I'm not suggesting that there was something rigged in it other than maybe a bit of intentional game management, but it felt awkward and it felt clumsy. And it made me wonder about where we're at with the NHL as far as trying to continue to evolve the way in which officiating is handled because hmm. it felt messy. Now, I don't know if you saw that or what you thought about it live, but for me, it was like, if we're going to call penalties, let's call penalties, but let's make sure there are penalties on the play and not things that are being reviewed after the fact, because if we're going to review things after the fact, let's review everything. And then we get into the situation where the whole game is getting bogged down every single whistle where we're going back to double check. Hey, was that a high stick? Was it not a high stick? It didn't get seen by the referee live, but maybe it was. Right. And we get into this very messy situation. We even had a situation again where we two guys go to the penalty box, DeHarnay and uh, uh, Jonathan Tavares. J- uh, DeHarnay called after the fact for cross checking. John Tavares called after the fact for slashing. And then after the game, John Tavares is fined by the league for egregious slashing or intent to injure. How are those both penalties then? And they weren't called on the play, they were called after the whistle. Do you know what I mean? It just, it, 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 it really rankled me and made me think something 
odd was occurring because I've never seen it in an NHL game. I don't know if you have or how you felt about it. So I did see it. I saw a bunch of the game. Uh, I saw the one that strikes me is the Matthews McDavid sort of interaction, which was, uh, you know, very similar to what you've just described in this situation. I mean, I think this is the challenge with the notion or the idea of game management. I believe referees should manage the game. And I think that particularly as you come down the stretch, uh, emotions are high, or, you know, both teams are competing for points and for home ice advantage in the playoffs. And there's a rivalry, Matthews, McDavid, <clears throat> you do need to step in and do it uh, and, and call penalties. But I think this was poor game management. Um, and, and I'll get into why in a second, but I think more critically, this demonstrates to me that this whole game management thing is something that no one wants to talk about, but knows what that it happens. And so there's no actual sort of standard or expectation or ongoing conversations. It feels like about how you actually properly manage a game. And because no one wants to admit it, that's why the conversations aren't happening. And this is wrapped up in sports betting and a bunch of other stuff that, you know, we don't have to get into today, but <clears throat> you know, for me, if I'm going to have a conversation with a referee about how to manage a game, it's very simple. You take the retaliatory penalty, you take the retaliatory player, you give him the penalty, not the initial incident, initial thing that happens, because then that team is punished for that retaliatory action. And hypothetically, because there's a there's it will stop the retaliatory actions from happening and therefore the game cools down and people are focused on the puck again. You know, that's what needs to happen in those situations to manage a game. But because there's not an ongoing conversation or game management does or doesn't exist. You know, then you end up in these situations where these sort of phantom calls or four on four situations are created. And I don't think it helped the flow of the game. I don't think it helped manage the game in terms of the emotions. I mean, we saw a massive scrum at the end of the game related to this, I think. Um, and no one is no one is left feeling happy because the teams feel like it's weird. The players feel like it's weird. And the fans feel, again, go back into this conversation, the one that we're having right now around inconsistency and officiating. So, you know, th that's my sort of initial take on it. Um, but again, I know I'm very much in the minority about thinking that game management is an important piece and needs to be done. Uh, but if we're not talking about it, no one knows how to do it. Then you end up in these types of situations, I guess, ultimately, is my point here. Yeah, I don't I don't I don't think that. I have a problem with game management. I guess maybe I just see it in a different way, which is that, you know, when you have a situation where a couple of guys are going at it and they continue to go at it shift after shift, and it feels like you're going to lose control of the emotion of that. I can understand guys getting called on some incidental contact, or like I say, like a coincidental minor to kind of sort of throw some cold water on it. But at the same time, when you have three different incidents over the course of a game that to be fair was not a particular, I didn't, I didn't see that as a particularly like aggressive game on either side. Neither team was like, there were some pushing and shoving scrums at the end of things, but we didn't see a whole bunch of that. We saw one or two incidences of it, but, but in both of those situations, it really was like, like a, stick infraction followed by a retaliatory stick infraction and both guys were gone and there was no diving calls there were no embellishment calls there was nothing like that to suggest that these guys were trying to just sort of say hey calm it down it was more just like they didn't want to make a decision they didn't want to put one team yeah. at a disadvantage and it that's where it started to feel a little weird to me is it's like if you weren't going to call I, i'll use the deharnay one again because so if you didn't see the play but basically in front of the net in a very very common type of hockey situation. You had a forward trying to back in to get a good position in front of the crease and a defenseman who's between him and his own goalie trying to keep him out of there. He's using his stick lower back. We've seen that all season long. None of them were egregious cross checks. And the thing is, none of them were egregious enough to cause the referee standing in the corner to put his hand up because there was at least three whacks and he had every opportunity to make his, a call at that point. Right. And the play continued on. Then Matthews turned around after the third or fourth whack and slashed him across the wrist to the point where DeHarnay left, left the ice holding his arm and only a minute or two, you know, only a second or two, I should say, after that, the whistle was blown dead for another unrelated reason. It was not blown dead for that part of the play. In fact, the DeHarnay situation, the, the puck had gone up and the Oilers were actually on a rush uh, into the zone. I believe it was a three on two and they blew it dead because DeHarnay was clearly injured. Yeah. And then only then did they did they 
called the penalty and in both penalties. And you watch the replay and at no point is there an arm in the air. And that's the part for me. So if it wasn't a penalty on DeHarnay when you first saw it, and it wasn't a penalty all the way up the ice, then when the play is blown dead for the injured player, not only is there one penalty you didn't call, now you're calling two penalties that you weren't calling in the play. If let's say DeHarnay had got off the ice a second faster and they hadn't blown the play dead and the Oilers had scored, would there have been any penalties at all? And if there weren't going to be any penalties at that point, why was there penalties in the situation we we, we actually got? Like well, that's exactly. the part that's frustrating for me is you can't have phantom calls when you call something you don't actually see. And then equally... If you do see something and you choose not to call it, you don't get a do-over at the next whistle. You didn't yeah. call it in, in the motion of the play. And that's what frustrated me. I think I think you're completely right. But again, this goes back to three different situations. The first one was Matthews McDavid. And I'm a, a diehard Oilers fan. And McDavid retaliated against you know some contact with uh, Matthews. Yeah. It should have just been McDavid. And I think if you call that, and you call McDavid on that situation, you don't have the Tavares That's situation right. later on in the game, right? That's fair. Because, yeah. because because you've proven to those teams, we're not taking the first guy, we're taking the second guy. Which is and that I'm okay with. That see, I would be yeah. okay with that if again you made the call in 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 an amongst the actual like action of the game. The other one we haven't talked about is the Evander Kane and Michael Bunting situation where Evander Kane and Bunting basically were wrestling each other from the blue line all the way back in front of the crease. Like the fact that the play wasn't blowing dead quicker was actually kind of startling. And again, watching the replay, no hand is in the air until after the whistles are blown. Like that's just basics to me. If you're going to call those two guys for roughing and in that situation, fine, that's easy. That should have been coincidental. It should not have been four and four. In my opinion, it should have been two guys to the box for roughing to cool heads. That's fine. I'm okay with that, but you call it, call it that don't then call it a two minute minor on each guy for roughing that, that only, and it, it, and again, they, they, they almost got to the point where they did drop gloves. Vander Kane was ready to, to go like they had wrestled all the way. It was like all of the foreplay was done. These two guys were clearly not going to, you know, just sort of carry on with the play. This is, they were, they were absolutely ready to go. And then they didn't. And the linesman jumped in there. That's fine. I'm okay with that. Call the penalty on the play. Yeah, I agree with you. I, you know, this opens up another question for me, something I've thought a lot about because I played a lot of lacrosse uh, and, and, you know, you see it in basketball all the time. Is there a version of hockey that you could see where there's an infraction that's egregious enough, not egregious enough to warrant a penalty, but, uh, a, you know, a breaking of the rules enough where a team would have to relinquish possession of the puck. And is there some version of hockey where we don't actually blow the whistle and the team just gives up the puck and has to go beyond the red line or behind the blue line. And then you just start from there. I don't know. I, I, I don't think so. I mean, the only thing that's like that is icing where there's, you, you're intentionally trying to kill clock, so they force you to take a face off back in your own zone. You can't change. That's kind of as close as the hockey side of it has gotten to. It's a bit like yeah. a free kick in soccer, right? It's yeah. like okay, you lose possession, the other team gets possession with the advantage. But you also do forward. see now in soccer more and more there if there's a penalty that occurs, the official can make a decision whether or not they're going to award a free kick, or if the team that was that that was the victim of possession yeah. maintains possession and continues on. That's the delayed penalty in hockey. On that thing, right? That's the delayed penalty. No, right? I know the team doesn't sure. lose the opportunity for an offensive opportunity just because somebody's infracted against them, so they get the chance to carry on with the play until the whistle's blown. Exactly, That's the same exactly. Thing. And and, we, and you know we've seen that happen before in, in 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 and in lacrosse. You know, there's there's certain infractions in which you 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 it nece- isn't necessarily a penalty, but you have to drop the ball and give it to the other team, right. and you guys kind of run back towards half. And you have okay, to so space. I'm, anyway, like we're this. getting off this. No, so no, no, that's okay. It, it was a it was a very vague topic anyway. So let's just play it out a little further then, because I like this idea. So, in the same vein though, what are what are for you? What is the like? What is the penalty that we have grown out of in the NHL? Because I have a very clear one that I'm tired of. I think it, we're done with it. I don't think it's intention. The reason we called it an infraction is necessary anymore. I'm ready to move past it. But I like I think the, the NHL could evolve beyond it. The last time we really saw massive rule change was coming out of the last strike, because that seems to be the only time the NHL has any kind of like actual courage when it comes to making big changes is it's like, well, people haven't watched hockey in six months. I'm sure they won't notice if we tinker with it. Fine. I'm not a conservative hockey fan. I'm OK with them evolving the game. For God's sake, the game has evolved around them anyway. I'm OK with it moving. But I'd like to see. So what is the rule change you'd be OK with? Or I'll, I'll, I'll give you a second piece of it if that's too hard. If there's a rule you'd like to take out, what's the rule you'd like to put in that isn't currently there in, 
otherwise. Do you have uh, one? I, you know, I think the obvious one for me is the puck over the glass rule. That's mine. I, and, and that's probably what I'm going to say too. I, d- I don't hate it though, because it's a bit like high sticking where it's this automatic infraction. And it does demand, well, what I like about it is it, sticking. It, okay, it, we'll it, talk it, about yeah. that in a second. <laughs> I do like the idea that like, if you challenge a defenseman and his only play is to shoot it out of the, you know, you force him into a situation where he shoots it out. Um, I think that there is there is value in that rule, but I also I you know obviously it was the delay the, the delay of game piece of it is no longer relevant at all. I, it goes totally to me, yeah. That. It goes back to me to the intention of the rule. So the idea was that there was a there was a concern that goaltenders and defensemen, but I really believe it was largely goaltenders. They believed that there, and you know who it is? It's Martin Brodeur. This is the Martin Brodeur rule. Yeah. Where if you go back and watch some games in the early 2000s, there were lots of situations where the goalie would go play the puck, and if he was under duress, he would just chuck it out of play, right? Like a quarterback when he's avoiding the sack. So there was a lot of that. But that is gone from the modern game. That doesn't, like, and you could say, is it because there's a rule? Yeah, sure. It's because there's been a rule for over a decade. That's true. But I also think the way goalies are playing the pucks is a lot different. The trapezoid has been there. That's the other thing I'd be okay losing, frankly. I think that the trapezoid has just become such an like a non. Oh, I don't think so. I don't. You think don't so. think you'd like goalies going back to corners? I have no problem with that. No, I don't want goalies going back to corners. I like the idea of the fact that you have to you have to race there to get the puck, and the goalie can't. I mean, we saw what an impact a goalie like uh, Mike Smith could make on a game with the trapezoids. Um, but when you give now, they're faster, they're All better, right. they're better at handling the puck. I think it would be, I think it would be uh, impact. Okay, so so we'll leave that one. So we were okay with, but but do you think the game would be okay without having that as a penalty? Like, is there another way for that kind of infraction to be it? To, uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's like a, the puck over the boards. Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of those things where you go back to possession. You asked if there was anything I could add in. You know what? I would make the standard a lot more liberal around awarded penalty shots. I think penalty shots are really exciting. They're a great part of the game. Um, and I think, you know, there's always a hesitation to award a penalty. Like how often you see one or two a year kind of thing if you're following a team pretty closely. You know, I think that there – and if it's if it's at all a 50-50 or even 75-25, it always, they always defer back to – so. I got a. I, I have a twist on that. So I, I, I agree with you. I think the penalty shot is very exciting, but I also think the penalty shot is has the potential to kind of be dumb. And I'm telling you, I'll tell you why. The actual percentage of goals scored off penalty shots is very low, versus the number of opportunities in a power play. So I think teams should be given the opportunity anytime a player is hauled down on a breakaway, it should be coach's choice. And depending on who that player is, and maybe it's even as simple as like in soccer where, where you know, you, you can pick the guy who's going to take it, right? Isn't that how it works? The guy's hauled down in, in the box. It yeah. doesn't have to be that guy who takes the penalty, right? No. You, your best player takes it. I think that's how it should be. So coaches have a choice. If you know you've got a guy who's really like Connor McDavid or you've got a guy who's really good on, you know, uh, on a penalty shot or on, on, on a breakaway or whatever, shootout then you should have the opportunity to decide, yeah, I'm going to take that and negate the chance at a two-minute penalty. Or strategically, no, I'd rather have the two-minute power play because I've got a killer power play. And you should have both choices. I think we should give that to coaches as an option every single so, time that kind of play occurs. And it has to be a clear breakaway. Obviously, the guy has to be hauled down. If you were going to call a penalty shot, you get the chance to get the coach the choice. So I would agree with that. I'd like to take that and take it even further. If their infraction occurs on a rush play where it's an odd man advantage, whether three on two, four on two, uh, you know, a, a three on three, and someone gets hauled down from behind, I'd like to give the team the opportunity to either take the penalty and do a traditional penalty or a two on one. Give them oh, a two on go. one. <laughs> All right. I like it. It's get it, we're basically, I mean, look, they've already gone to three on three overtime. I mean, what else you want to make the game more exciting? There's more exciting right there, but no, I think that there's things like that. You could tinker with. There's one last one I noticed that I thought was really weird. How do we feel like, obviously I think the hybrid icing has gone, gone the right way. As far as safety, I think it's important. It's there. I don't Absolutely. know if you noticed on two different occasions though. Again, I'm, I don't know who these referees were in this Toronto game. I'm really harping on them, but two different incidences, the linesman actually blew the icing dead before the puck had crossed the goal line. And the intention of the rule is obviously the defenseman has to try to at least make an effort to get there. It has to be out of reach for them to just blow it dead. Right. Otherwise they blow it off. He's, Oh, he could have got there. It's it's it, you know, it, you don't have the old way where we used to have the opposing team had to get there where it was always icing. But in this situation, like the puck was between the, the, the circle and the end line. And obviously it was going to get there, but like, 
that happens near the end of a period. Let's say you're killing, you know, the opposing team is killing off uh, the last seconds while a net is empty and you chuck the puck down the ice. The referee blows it dead before it actually gets there. That's precious seconds that actually could count against the defensive team. Like that for me feels like we, we better be very clear about when the whistle is blown here. It's got to at least cross that line. It's the same as offside. The puck's not there. It's not icing yet. It was going to be icing. I don't think that's the rule though, Jordan. I think the rule is, uh, they make a determination when the players get to the faceoff dots. So even if the whether puck or not they're going to blow it, yes. Yeah. But what I'm saying is, in this situation, the puck was going to be iced. The puck had crossed the you know furthest point of the circle. The player who the defenseman who was chasing it down, no no opposing player nearby, literally just Darnell and they're skating back to touch up. Right, doesn't have to actually get to the puck, but was proving. Look, I made an effort for it. He hasn't even got to the dot yet. So it's obviously going to be icing, but they blew it dead before it crossed the line. Now we're talking tenths of hundreds of seconds, whatever. But for me, it's still like it was pretty visually obvious. It hadn't yet been iced. Maybe it hits an ice chunk. Maybe it doesn't get there. I don't know. It's weird. You know what I mean? I'm less I'm I'm more concerned. I think the rule should be and the whistle should be blown dead the moment they get to the dots. The player gets to the dots. Regardless of where the puck is. Yeah. Wow. All right. All right. Well, look, we've we've definitely given the NHL lots of uh Great insight. I'm sure they will be taking all of this to heart. Uh, maybe you've got the, some Gary fun Bet- ideas. Gary Bettman's a, a paid subscriber to uh, he's paid. Network. Oh, yeah, he's paid. I don't yeah. think Gary Bettman is paid to subscribe to anything his entire life, which is why we have such a terrible NHL subscription video on demand system. Uh, all right, let's leave it there. That's topic two. If you're looking for a new podcast, you should check out the Ellipses Thinking Podcast, hosted by Greg Dollar Coltman. Each new episode, Greg sits down with a guest to talk about where they are on their creative journey. You can listen now anywhere you get your podcasts. Topic three this week, uh, there, there, there's not a lot else to talk about. We we had a couple, you know, tournaments occurring this weekend. We're not going to talk about the Briar because there's... I, I'm just not prepared to talk about the Briar, but we can talk about golf, uh, the Players' Championship. Very decisive win for Scotty Scheffler, who's I think for me, kind of my favorite player right there. Him and Zalatoris are the two guys I've really enjoyed recently, just because they're they're such like diverse, like different characters than what we've seen traditionally. Like, Scotty is such a just sort of like a curmudgeon all the time. He wins a tournament and it's kind of like, eh. I don't know if you saw the entire tournament. Uh, his grandmother was walking the entire course of the final round. She walked every single hole alongside him, like watched every single mm. hole all through 18 with her walker. Like give, give granny Scheffler some credit. That was an, you know, a very uh, robust day of uh, cardio for her. I don't know how old she is, but you know, She's probably not too young, uh, but good for her. And then the joke at the end of the night was when they asked Scheffler, are you going to celebrate tonight? He goes, well, I hope there's some food at grandma's because I'm going to go there. So that was kind of sweet. Um, I assume you watched a little bit of it, but I know you've also been following sort of just the beginning of this golf season in general. You watched the the Netflix series. Maybe tell me a bit about that. We talked about documentaries on this show. I haven't watched it yet. Uh, does it meet the same like standard as the F1 show? Do you think it's going to revolutionize the way uh, fans uh, are drawn into the sport of golf? Or is it kind of what we would expect a bit uh, pretentious and a little silly? It's funny. My sister and I talked about this a little bit today and she's a big fan of both the F1 show and she watched the golf one alongside me. And do I think it's to that caliber and, uh, and standard? No, but that season that they're on season five, this is season one. And it's probably very similar to the first season of the F1 show in terms of quality and access and those sorts of things. It's really good because, you know, as we did on this show, uh, it really sort of walks alongside the entire live golf experience and what was happening and the players leaving um, and, and was one of the quotes is you, you've chosen a heck of a year to follow golf. Um, and it's really all related to sort of this emerging, uh, this emerging league and live golf, but also Rory and Tiger's actions to sort of stem the bleeding towards the end of the year when they were losing players and there was some real concern around it. Um and so for that, I think it's worth watching if you even know it. It also gives you what it's nice about it. And I, this is the same thing about the F1 show is, well, you know, folks like Rory and Tiger are, are and Dustin Johnson, the names that you know um, are part of the show. It also gives you some insights into some of the lesser known players, uh, what it's like to be a rookie on tour, um, you know, the challenge, how challenging it is to sort of get 
uh, a tour card and keep it I, for those sorts of reasons. I really would recommend it. And it, it, and it was really enjoyable and, and it's not hokey. It doesn't feel um, over the top or arrogant. There's more F bombs than I, expe- I expected on the show. You know, like there, there's that kind of stuff that I really liked. And, and, and I think it does a nice job of setting up the PGA tour, which has done a good job of, I think in the latter half of last year and the season and heading into this season, really sort of rebranding itself. And, and, and we talked about the waste management tour uh, 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 championship not too long ago. Uh, It is trying to kind of shed that old person kind of vibe. Uh, And the show serves that. And the PGA tour is doing a good job of that. And I think the fact they've been able to maintain, um, membership of some of the, that young core that's emerging in PGA in the PGA tour. Um, and I think the other thing that they talk a lot about is legacy and the value of, of sort of the, the, the tour itself. Um, you know, it, 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 that stuff is really important and, and, and they sort of reinforce that, which I think is really valuable. So obviously, you know, as I said, we're kind of in the kickoff to this season, we're getting closer to the masters, which is kind of the big spring event that, really gets all of the casual golf fans uh, worked up. Obviously the players is not of the same caliber, although I think there's probably more people watching that than let's call it, you know, a random PGA tour throughout the, you know, the season. But as we see this, obviously live live golf or the Saudi golf tours, I like to call them has gotten themselves a TV deal, um, which was a big thing after their first season last year, where they were sort of confined to Twitter and YouTube They've got a television deal. Obviously, they continue to to grow uh, and they will continue to try to develop their brand. We talked a lot last year about how we felt like the beginning of that was going to cause an interesting challenge for the traditional golf sort of infrastructure, you know, both in the media and, and in general. Where do, where do we stand at year two here? Is, is, has Liv done enough to kind of, do you think it's... It, it's, it's building towards a continued success thing. Is it facing as much criticism or as heavy criticism as it did last year? Is that starting to wash away? Is the sports washing part of it starting to kick in here? And do you think that there is enough support that it will continue to grow to a place where the PGA should be concerned or continue to be concerned about it? Like where, where are we at in the golf wars as we called them? The golf wars. Uh, you, the golf wars. It's, yeah, that's hilarious. Um, so I think, to answer your question, I don't know. I, I should the PGA Tour be as concerned? I don't think so. Until you start losing players again and really substantive players, uh, and more than just one or two here and there, uh, and particularly older guys that are kind of coming off the tour, I don't think you're going to have the same sort of concern as you had last year. In terms of the sports washing thing, I think it's a real thing to watch over the next year and see where that goes. Does live go mainstream or not? I was watching highlights. uh, You know, I watch sports highlights pretty regularly and it doesn't come up too often. uh, Or if it does, it's sort of really secondary in the back half of the show. I think that's a good indicator. Uh, Ultimately, these sports broadcasters make decisions based on what people are interested in what they watch. And so if it's not happening at all or happening at the back end of the show, it's not that popular. Um, We're going to get a test of it, though. We're going to get a test of it because we know that the Augusta has announced that they will allow the live golf players to compete this year in the Masters. Yeah. So it, it will be an interesting thing to see them out there. We've already had a couple tournaments previously. Yeah, and they did that had. last year too. They did that last year too. Yeah, so but last year it was still such an early thing. It really didn't feel quite as entrenched. If you think about it, the when the real like sort of live revolution occurred, it was post Masters last year. It was those players all kind of jumped ship right around that time, but it really took over the summer for it to feel like it was sinking in as this was really going to be an us versus them. Whereas, because if you if you recall too, the live guys weren't allowed back into any of the, the majors last year. Uh, oh yeah, they, yeah, they were. They were. I, I thought yeah, they weren't. No, DJ. Yeah. DJ played in, in a couple. I think he played in the open championship at the oh, old interesting. course. Okay. Uh, so there, there was a little bit of that, but not to the same extent. Yeah. People will watch them. People will want to know where the live guys stack against. And they're also being in, included. Are, are they going to be included in the world golf ranking or are we going to have two rankings? I have no idea. And I, and I, I don't think anyone, I, I, I don't know. And I don't think anyone really cares about golf ranking. It's really something for players to try and manage sure. their cards sure, outside sure. of maybe the number one. Right. But you know, I, I think, you know, what would really shake things up if someone from live won the, uh, the masters, I think well, that sure. 
that would be that would be concerning. Otherwise, I just don't think it's the same thing. The only thing that kind of gives me pause is there's so much money in Live, uh, and there's clearly massive investments that have been made. Um, so when, when money's no issue, then you can kind of hang around and be inefficient and and not generate things. I I I'm imagining they're on like a five year, ten year kind of plan. And as long as they can continue to hit their metrics, it wouldn't that plan, whatever it looks like, then sure they're going to be around. But, but I don't you know think when you look at when you look at the changes the PGA has made, and also this sort of stadium thing we still haven't quite seen, but we know is coming from Tiger and Rory. Like, hasn't Live already kind of won in some ways, in the sense that they they wanted to be the disruptor. They've come in and become a a disruptor. They forced the PGA to change to compete with them. And it feels a lot less like the PGA is looking at them as some yuppie upstart that they don't really have to concern themselves with as much as they, they look and feel concerned still. And it's interesting oh, yeah. because as you say, the money is the big piece of it, right? It's the one thing the PGA can cannot offer is the money. And yet with, without being able to protect or safeguard the majors, you know, the PGA is kind of already on the back foot there. I appreciate that the live golf, events aren't going to hold the same kind of impact that you know i guess the waste management and a couple other more well-known tournaments might but to be fair like is your average golf fan really sitting down every single weekend to watch the like you know genesis open or the the you know farmers insurance open from you know I don't yeah, know, Toledo. it's a well-made point. I mean, one of the things that they announced in the sh- that was part of the show and that they announced at the end of last year was they were there was going to be some requirements around top players going to more events, um, and yeah, and, and uh, attached to that was more prize money at those events. So I think that that will have an impact for sure. And I, yeah, so have they won in terms of being a disruptor for sure? I w- w- is that what we mean when we say is this what's the success that live wanted well, live i'm not saying be, it's the war but i think it's a fight sure. i think they've won a battle you know they've won the first sort of oh, salvo here you know i feel like it feels like they've done enough to disrupt the status quo that that you know they've positioned themselves in a in like again if you have an upstart league that comes up like look at let's take the xfl as just an example of some alternative to the mainstream the xfl means nothing to the nfl there is no fear generated by the xfl but if the xfl all of a sudden had saudi money and we're talking billions of dollars being infused into a rival league the nfl would 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 definitely be in a very different kind of place when it comes to how they are responding to it you know the nfl looks at it right now as oh look at these guys trying again let's see what they do in a couple years if they can grow it to something right there is concern with the xfl is there with the cfl and i mean zero yeah in this situation we're talking about the pga which is already sort of a fragile business in terms of its actual sports broadcast product it's not a robust and well-built thing it has five or six maybe tournaments a year that people actually give a shit about outside of again hardcore golf fans nothing against them but you know what i mean the average sports fan as you say you know live stuff is buried at the back of sports center most weekends pga stuff is buried at the back of sports center and if you're yeah. in canada the only time they ever really care is if hadwin has a good weekend you know what i mean like yeah to some extent or the canadian opens on or something like fine. that yeah no for sure for sure I, I i don't necessarily disagree with you there i mean i think this is like i said lives probably on a five-year ten-year plan yeah. and you're not gonna you're not gonna win all the marbles in year one i think live did squeak out a victory in the first year this year pga tour is coming back i mean i think this show is part of it as well too right so that's um, my last so question is the next piece right like well, we, the, have to, we have to wait till the end of the year will that show follow the live golf guys on their tour do you think it'll be interesting to see i i don't know that any announcement's been made but they certainly what they did they did interview dj and a couple of the folks but they were interviewing them before they'd made their decisions uh, or immediately after um and they didn't show any of the golf from the actual live events what they did show was you know those live players when they played the pga uh the, the major tournaments, right? So okay. it'll be interesting to see what that looks like. Does Liv get its own show? I mean, I think you're downplaying the impact of golf, particularly in the, in the States. Um, let's not forget they have a channel, right? That's completely devoted to this, that continues to exist. And, uh, you know, I've only yeah, ever watched- Everybody has a channel in the States, buddy. 
Yeah, I know, but you know, like they, they, you know, you can get that here too, and people do watch it. So, you so know, I, think I was in, I was in Seattle, I was in Seattle for a weekend, a couple of weeks back, and they, it was the first game between Boston and Edmonton, the Oilers. I know I'm off topic, but just, just, just follow me through this little uh, rabbit hole. They were setting up the highlights package for the Boston Edmonton game, pointing out that Boston was the best team in the league versus Connor McDavid, who was the best player in the league, right? And then they showed as they sometimes do to set it up the national anthems and they cut to a picture of uh, Brett Kulak on the bench. And they said, there he is, Connor McDavid. Yeah. And I just sat back and I went, are you kidding? This is ESPN. This is the NHL's official broadcast partner in watching sports on a national broadcast of sports center. And they don't know what the hell the best player in the NHL looks like a guy who will probably have 150, if not more points this year. And they cut to like our fifth best defenseman. So yeah, sure. Okay. Maybe golf matters in some places, but I don't know. I, I have very little faith in how, how any of these things are communicated. I think that outside, as you say, those top four or five players, I don't think it's got the same reach. And I think that they're also banking on it, having a lot bigger reach than it is, but we'll see, I guess we'll wait and see. And maybe this new thing, Tiger and Roy are working on for the stadiums. And as you say, these trying to get some more buzz into the tournaments, obviously you were right. The waste management open definitely did a good job of continuing to grow and become a younger, more hip thing. But again, when we're playing like the Arnold Palmer classic in June, does anybody care? Really? I don't know. I'm also the one who's already declared baseball dead. So what do I know? Yeah, I mean, this is another wait and see kind of thing. That's that's ultimately what, 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 where we're at. But uh, I think PGA Tour has come out swinging, and it needs to be noticed, right? Call it a full swing. <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right. Uh, thank you, Elliot. As always, a lot of fun, and I appreciate it. Uh, we'll be back next week. Until then, thank you for listening. Uh, if you haven't already, please go hit that subscribe button. You can follow us. On Instagram, you can also find out more about this show and all the other shows in the Ordinary Podcasting Network at OrdinaryPodcasts.com. That was Hattrick. Hattrick is a member of the Ordinary Podcasting Network. It's produced every week by Jordan Dyler-Coltman and Braden Dyler-Coltman. You can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Thanks for listening. The Ordinary Podcasting Network wishes to acknowledge that the lands on which our conversations take place include Treaty 6 territory, the traditional meeting ground and home for many indigenous peoples, including the Cree, Dene, Soto, Blackfoot, Métis, and the Nakota Sioux peoples, as well as the unceded territories of the Coast Salish peoples, including the territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. We acknowledge the many First Nations, Métis, and Inuit, whose footsteps have marked these lands for generations. And we extend our appreciation for the opportunity to live, create, and share stories on these territories. The Ordinary Podcasting Network intends to engage in conversations and dialogue, which acknowledge that reconciliation is not a destination, but a journey, and that we remain committed to practicing our craft in a decolonized space.